So I opened up the New York Times website this morning and the headline at the top of the page that I saw was this. With trench warfare deepening, parties face unsettled electoral map. See, when I first started reading the headline, I thought we've got to be talking about some war-torn country. And then by the time I got to the end of it, I realized they were talking about the aftermath of an election in the United States of America. And the the description the, of trench warfare um, is sadly kind of appropriate as I think about it, because, you know, in trench warfare, you've got two sides that have dug trenches into the ground, right, for protection, for fortification. Um, and, you, you know, when you're down there in the trench, you don't see the other people directly. You know that they're over there because they're throwing bombs and stuff at you and shooting at you periodically. But you don't actually see the individuals. You're down here, you're entrenched, and boy, that's just kind of what it feels like right now with everybody just deeply entrenched in their own, like, tribes, their own beliefs. We think that this is right, and we think that you're evil, and well, no, no, you're set up to destroy everybody, and we know that this is wrong, and it's just, um, it's troubling, <laughs> for lack of, of a much stronger word. Um, and so here we are today um, at the end of a series that we started 15 weeks ago in the book of 1 John. And when we started this series, what I said was that I believe that really the only thing that can truly heal this world, that can really make things right, is love. And I admitted at the time that that sounds kind of saccharine. It sounds, um, you know, maybe a little too flowery, but that I wanted us to spend some time really working on that, right? Going through this book of First John, not just to deepen our understanding of what God's love is, but hopefully to better connect into that source of love. Because I really do believe that that source, that power, that love is literally the only thing that's going to help us out at all right now. So here we are at the end of the book, um, the final uh, message in the series. In, uh, in my Bible, the little subheading on top of it says epilogue, right? Which so typically when you're reading a novel uh, and you get all the way through, when you get to the epilogue, the story's over. Right. You've already had the rising climax. You've already had the conclusion. You've already kind of calmed down. And then the epilogue is like, okay, now that we've been through that ride, let's take a little, let's take a few moments. Let's debrief. Let's think about what we went through and see where we've landed uh, a while back. So where does the author of first John, uh, how does, how does he end this book? What is, what is the epilogue? Let's take a look at it and see how can we land this thing in a place that's, uh, that gives us some comfort, that gives us some hope, maybe some challenge and instruction. I don't know. Let's see what he does. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the boldness we have in him. 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. If you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask and God will give life to such a one. To those whose sin is not mortal. There is a sin that is mortal. I do not say that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. God, we were so close. I mean, we were going along. We were, we were like wrap, wrapping this thing up. We're talking about love. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about eternal life. And then he has to go off and say, oh, by the way, there is a sin that leads to death, and you shouldn't pray about that. And it's not in the middle of the book. It's not, there's not like a whole chapter about it. It's in the epilogue. In fact, it, he doesn't even go on to tell you what the sin is. There is no more expounding. He just goes on to the next point um, about how those born of God don't sin, but the one who's born of God protects them, blah, 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 blah. Keep yourself from idols, right? Why? Why is this here? That's actually what I was screaming at the computer several weeks ago when I was looking at the scripture that I was going to do in the end one, thinking in my mind, we're going to end this. It's going to be nice. And then I read the text and I was like, this is the one that has the sin that leads to death in it. Come on. <sighs> anyway. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Let's just say for the sake of argument that maybe this isn't just a one-off aside comment that he tossed in here without explanation merely to torment people like me thousands of years later. What if the context is actually here in the book? What if it is explained? In fact, because of where it is in the book at the end of it, what if in fact it was the point or that we've been building up towards this entire time? Well, let's take a look. Let's just flip back through the book, and let's see what we see. Uh, whoops. And let me share this so you can read along with me. Okay. Where is everybody? All right. There. All right. Chapter one. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, 
and his word is not in us. Chapter two, whoever says I am in the light while hating a brother or sister, still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light. And in such a person, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go. Because the darkness has brought on blindness. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. Chapter 3. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers, and you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. Because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. For God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Reading through the whole book in selections, there are three big themes that I think emerge from this. The first, obviously, is love. The second, the centrality of Jesus Christ, right? So many things are the new commandment I've given you, that you must love one another and believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And then also, finally, fellowship with God, right? We want to have fellowship with you. Our fellowship is with God and with Jesus. And all of the language about abiding in, right? Love, 
the centrality of Christ, fellowship with God. Three major themes. And if you or I were to write a paper or a book or a letter or something that talked about three themes, we might structure it such a way. Maybe we'll talk about love first, then Jesus, and then fellowship, or maybe in a different order, but one kind of building on the other, building on the other. But if you noticed in those passages that we read, there was no order to that. Which chapter talks about love? Which chapter talks about Jesus? Which chapter talks about fellowship and abiding? It's all intermixed. It's all over the place. And I don't think it's sloppy writing. I actually think it's brilliant and intentional, right? Because we are commanded to love each other. Why? Because we have fellowship with God. How do we know that God abides in us and we abide in God because of the love that we have for each other? Well, what is love? Well, love is God loving us by sacrificing Jesus, right? And believing in Jesus is, in fact, loving. And loving is belief in Christ. And and we know that God abides in us because of his sacrifice. We know that we abide in God and we are able to love because that God is in us. And we know who is with us because they love each other. It's all connected, right? This is an ultimate three-way chicken and egg scenario here. Which one comes first? Which one causes the other? They can't exist without any of them. Love, Jesus, fellowship with God. These are not three separate themes. Three distinct things and yet three completely connected things. Reminds me of something else. And I think this is really either an amazing coincidence or absolutely brilliant. Because the structure of the thematic structure of this book is screaming the Trinity at me. The Father, the Son, the Spirit together in relationship. They can't be without each other. Right. They literally cannot exist without the other one. How can you have a father if you do not have a son? How do you have a how can you be a son without having a father? And which one comes first? They happen at the same time. It is the three together and the space in between. It is the relationship. It is why that John says in chapter four of this book, God is love. It's not just these three entities. It is the three entities with the space in between. Remember the, the picture of the three sitting down, enjoying the meal together. It, it includes the meal. It is all together interconnectedness, this amazing invitation to join in. Um, Richard Rohr describes this as a flow. As, think of like a river flowing down, right? And think of the love of God, this powerful force of the water flowing down the river. And if you come upon this river and you see it flowing, you're going to notice that it was flowing before you saw it. It continues to flow if you decide you're not going to have anything to do with it. It flows whether or not you believe it or, or experience it or accept it or anything. It's there. It's real. And if you hop in the river... The flow can carry you. It can wash over you and under you. It can carry you on this amazing journey, take you to places that you've never have imagined. It's powerful. Or you can try to stand up in the river and force your way back upstream. You can get out and completely disconnect from the flow. The flow is still there, and yet you're hopping out of it. This amazing, powerful love that has the power to heal us, 
to give us life, to connect us with God, this ultimate fellowship of abiding within and with each other. And within that context, if you see somebody stumbling, if you see somebody that sins, pray for them. Because there are sins that are not mortal. But what is the sin that leads to death? If we receive life from being connected with God, the only thing that could lead to death is to disconnect, is to fight the flow, is to just completely get up and check out. Where is my... In... Again, back to Richard Rohr for a second. In his book, The Divine Dance, he has a chapter called, Do We Have to Talk About Sin? And he says, Sin is elegantly simple to understand. Sin is whatever stops the flow. Call it hatred. Call it unforgiveness. Call it negativity. Call it violence. Call it victimhood. You just can't afford to do these things. They're death. Always death. Sin is not some arbitrary list of little bad things that God tests you on. So few appear to pass this giant entrance exam anyway. It creates a rather dismal, depressed world. Sin is not a word for certain things that hurt or upset God. Inside the perfect flow, God can only be hurt if we are hurting ourselves. Just as, in effect, the risen Jesus tenderly says to Paul in Acts chapter 26, It is hard for you. When you push back against the goad, God is essentially saying it is you who cannot afford to be unloving. You just can't. It's going to stop the intrinsic flow and you'll be outside the mystery. You'll be outside the flow of grace that is inherent to every event. We are not punished for our sins. We are punished by our sins. This is why Jesus commanded us to love. You must love. You must or you won't know the basics. You won't know God. You won't know yourself. And so that, I think, is the sin that leads to death. And it makes sense because we have this amazing gift presented in front of us, this amazing opportunity to fellowship, to connection with God and with Jesus, to love, to be loved, and to love others. And nothing can take that away from us, I guess, except if somehow we fight against it. So let's stop here. Let me just ask, how how does this sit with you this morning? This idea of a sin that leads to death, of fighting back against the love of God, And not even just, like, how does it sit with you or what do you think about it? But, like, that's kind of vague, abstract language in some ways. What does that look like, practically speaking? What are things that we have seen or done that fights back against this love of God, against this deep connection to God? And what can we do about that?
Go ahead, Val. Um, I really like this message a lot, Ted. Um, I, I think it's really good. Um, and I just found myself sitting there and just being like, yes, yes, yes. And then I, I know I've shared this before and I'll, sh- I'll share it again, but just thinking of practical things, like I think in my own life, I know I've shared after Eloise was born, I had a very difficult relationship with my mother-in-law and um, there was uh, just a lot of miscommunication, a lot of frustration and quite frankly, on my part, a lot of anger and bitterness. And I, I sort of let that bitterness um, seep down into my heart and, and just, you know, marinate there and grow. And um, I, it really was an epiphany that I had. And it was after Charlottesville happened and I was watching all of this and I thought, what is wrong with these people? How could someone have so much hatred in their heart? Like, how could they have so much hatred? And it was literally like this little thing just dropped down in front of me and was like, because they've allowed this bitterness to take root. And I was sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing, but it's towards my mother-in-law. And like, I need, I need to, I need to have this like removed. It's like a cancer that I've allowed to just fester and grow. And I I need to have surgery to have this radically cut out of my life. And I don't have a practical like step-by-step of like, well, first you do this and second you do this. It's like a lot of intentional hard work. And to me, I think also the like being removed from love or allowing hatred in any form to get into you, it's the death is, I sort of like to take the afterlife out of it because I have a lot of changing views on that. So I take the idea of heaven and hell out of it. And I think of like, what does that mean? Like, it's like death right now, right? Like it kills me now, even while I'm alive, I'm dead. Um, yeah, it's, it's really changed the way I view everything. Thank you for sharing that, Val. And that's, it's so true that those, that feeling of anger, I've, Henry and I have talked about this a lot, um, that sometimes it can feel, it feels bad. Like you feel, you know, it doesn't feel good to be angry, but at the same time, it kind of does feel a little bit good to hold on to that. Like there's a certain rush that you come from that. Um, and it's insidious. It's, it's, it's almost tempting to like, to want to stay into that state. Yeah. So I, wanted to be to, able... Good. Oh, I just wanted to add a caveat. I think it's okay to be angry or to feel anger, but it is, I think then the bitterness and the hatred that takes root after the fact, because of course we will be angry and experience anger and I don't think that's a bad thing in and of itself. It's what happens after. Yeah. It's grabbing it and holding on to it and keeping it. Yeah. Uh, Daryl. Well, there's, there's a lot here too. Uh, I think you, you hit it real well. And I'm, I'm with you, Val. Uh, I think this was a really powerful uh, expression of it. And when you, when you juxtapose all of those passages together as they flow through first John, uh, you begin to see how they interconnect such well. 
And, you know, the idea of taking the first of, of the book to the last of the book, the point from which, the point to which, and suddenly begin to see those themes just pouring out in the text themselves. There is a connectivity there. Um, I guess there's a couple of things that, that are coming to my mind. One is it's not, and, and Val, you're exactly right. It's not anger because, I mean, the demand for justice has got to be there at times, you know, and, and sometimes that does require uh, emotion, you know, uh, and love itself. When we're talking about love, we're not talking necessarily about any kind of emotion. We're talking about moving and wanting and doing for the best of another person or persons. You know, it's, it's not just a matter of, Oh, I feel so warm and fuzzy toward you. Um, because I could be totally, I could be totally non hateful toward you and still not love you. I, okay, whatever, you know, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I'm just going to ignore you, you know, and, and that's not love either. That, that's not love either. Uh, somehow there has to be within us this desire for the best of other people, regardless. Um, it, it kind of hit me this week. I, I posted something that was a quote from Don McLaughlin, um, and, and he wrote, I'm going to read it here. It says, churches and believers are faced right now with a very difficult choice. Will we order our lives according to our politics, religious affiliations, or social preferences, or will we submit to Jesus' creed? He has set the conditions for how his creed is to be understood and prioritized. If love is not first, both in order and in value, then we have it wrong. Love first is the creed of Christ. If Christ is our creed, then love first is our calling. We will devote every micron of our being to his love first standard by which we will measure our orthodoxy. You would have to deny the creed to discriminate against your neighbor. You would have to cast off the creed to curse your brother or sister. You would have to reject the creed to revile your enemy. You would have to abandon the core of your faith to crush another person with withering criticism. And I had posted that. It was actually an old post. I'd reposted it. And some guy comes back and says, and starts quoting Matthew 23, where Jesus, you know, really gets onto the, the Pharisees and tax collectors, you know. And he says, well, I suppose Jesus didn't follow his own creed. And I, my immediate response is, why do we have to qualify everything? You know, what, what are you so afraid of? And, and for me, that's, are, are we afraid that we're going to love too much? Can we love too much? And regardless of that moment in Jesus' life, which I think is not what he was thinking it was, uh, but regardless of that moment in Jesus' life, we are not going to damage, we're not going to hurt anyone by loving them when understood correctly, by loving them too much. There's no way. And as you're saying, the refusal to love is the dangerous ground we step on. Thank you, Daryl. It's great. John. Yeah, um, at the first of your message, uh, that was brilliant. 
uh, after you read all the scriptures and said, reasonably, when I write and when I read, I anticipate getting a case, you know, there's point one, point two, point three conclusion. Right. Obviously. And and the way that you unfolded that was all tangled up together. The image had in my mind was spaghetti. And you have spaghetti ordinarily is yellow. You can get the spinach spaghetti, which is green. I guess you get tomato spaghetti that's red. If you if you cook those and you, and you mix all together on a plate, that's that's what I see. They're all there together. You can't you can't. And, and went, wow. Uh, although I love John, my favorite book is John and First John. If I could meet with John, I would be absolutely angry at him because the last sentence <clears throat> keeps you from idols. Why didn't he do the whole chapter after that? Qualify, what does that really mean, please? Don't just leave. That is such a dangling. I would, what? Anyway, I love John except that last sentence. He could have left you down. I wouldn't have been aggravated. No, he left that in there to aggravate me. Yeah, I, I submit my same hypothesis for this as I do for that end sentence in this. And we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But yes. Sir Walker. Yeah, I laughed out loud when I heard the last sentence. I was like, oh, I forgot about that. That good dangly ending. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so like I resonate a lot with Val's story just um, in different ways and in different relationships. And one of the things that's been really key for me is um, just learning and really understanding that anger comes from a place of fear. And sometimes that fear is not fear of the other person. Um, but I would find that people that I carried a lot of anger towards and a lot of resentment towards and bitterness towards, it was because I was afraid that their opinions of me were right. And if I was angry at them, then I was standing up and saying, no, you're wrong about this. But underneath it, I was afraid that they were right. And really like, I think that's why God says, or why John says, you know, we love because he first loved us. And a lot of times that comes across as we love and we forgive other people because God forgave our terrible sins. You know, we're such pieces of crap and God forgave us. So we have to forgive everybody else. But really it's that we cannot love other people unless we realize that God loves us as we are. We can't, we can't not be angry at everybody else if we're taking their opinions and like internalizing them. Uh, we have to have our identity grounded in God um, to be able to give love to anybody. So. That's awesome. Thank you. Me too, Charles Kaiser. This may seem a little left field compared to all of the other wonderful comments that are being made. Um, part of what I'm kind of thinking about is my experiences in the last few weeks and, and this fall trying to connect and get to know black and brown pastors in the city. And um, uh, sensing that there is, uh, because of uh, the history of, racism and racialized structures in our city and county 
and and just horrible offenses and atrocities that have occurred in the 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 history of our city that there there is a this dividing wall um metaphorically that like i feel like i'm i'm trying to poke at the dividing wall there is understandably suspicion and like you know uh, uh what what's the angle here white man you know trying to to form relationships what's the what's the motive and trying to find openings in the wall to enter in and to engage relationships and and just i guess in light of this morning's conversation uh realizing that there is there is there is a flow to death too um there is the whole world is under the power of the evil one kind of thing that there are there are these uh really um entrenched structures uh and histories that i mean they they overwhelm me and um uh, in that flow it to love feels very much to go up the river um and to uh even to get to a space where you can engage relationship i none of that is to say that i'm not saying that my 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 black and brown colleagues are the wall are they are not the powers and principalities if anything they've been subject to them I, but to say like those things that uh, are histories that divide us even the 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 history that i own in my whiteness that divides us like uh uh, that's part of the challenge, I guess I'm faced. I'm to, to enter in and to get in the flow of God's, of God's love is also to, it's not like there's no resistance. I mean, there are currents and structures, uh, that, that, uh, that work against it, I guess that, that's some of what I'm chewing on and feel like I'm facing. That's, that's good. That's well said. Thank you, Charles. Um, no metaphor is perfect. It's like there's rivers that, that are intersecting or something. I don't know. But yeah, but, but I'm picking up what you're putting down there. Thank you, uh, everybody for, for your thoughts, um, on this. I do, I do want to come back and, and just finish this thing out here. Um, picking back up, uh, where I immediately threw my Bible to the floor after I read there about the sin that leads to death. Um, in verse 18, it says, we know that those who are born of God do not sin, but the one who was born of God protects them and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And I agree with John Oliver that if he had ended the book right here, that would have been a great ending to a great book. It seems like the perfect capstone to all of that, wrapping up the three themes, tying them all in together. But, you know, I think about right now with all of the division and all of the, all of the problems is that people, we're, we're, we are very tribal right? We have Christians and non-Christians. Within Christianity, we have 
evangelical and mainline and Catholic and Orthodox. And even within those, we're, we don't agree with each other, right? We have Republicans and we have Democrats and we have never Trump Republicans and we have like centrist Democrats and way left Democrats and we all have our groups and we're like, gosh, if only this person could get into power, then we could fix all the things that the other person did. And the other group's like, no, if only our person can stay in power, then they can prevent the other people from doing the horrible thing. And we have all of these things that we want to invest ourselves in. And, and at the same time, we're probably going, yeah, we need to love each other and we need to love each other while we also fix the problems that our person knows how to fix. Or we need to fix the problems that we have identified are the problems and we need to get that up there. We have these things that we are looking at right now that we see if this can happen, this will make things better. And yeah, the message of, of love and fellowship and all of that, that can help us to get there. So that's great. And so I think that that's why after all of this, he was like, there's one more thing that we need to make sure that we drive home. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because all of these other things, your position, your tribe, your person, your goal, your thing, whatever it is, it's right. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. But that's not where we need to invest ourselves. We are called to love because God is in us. We are able to abide in God because he sent his son. We know that we follow his son because we love one another. We know that God abides in us because we love one another. That needs to lead us. That needs to guide us. That will change the world. Little children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs>